With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon and welcome to this episode of the Black Tuesday podcast. I'm your host, Terrence Biggs. When we look at addiction, when we look at treatment, there there is a palpable stigma that has pretty much existed in America since for as long as I've been alive and that's been a while. So to understand the levels of addiction, of just the levels of treatment, just the levels of everything involving substance and substance abuses, decided to bring in an expert. Dr. Ryan Marino is an emergency a medical physician and toxicologist. Yep. Good afternoon, Dr. Marino. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am good, Doc. When we look at the stigma of addiction, I want to kind of tackle it from three different viewpoints. You have medically, the societal kind of, the outrage, not the outrage, but the societal kind of turning your nose up and politically. Medically, when someone is an addict, what don't or what should the average layman know about how addicts are treated medically? So I like how you divided that up into the, those three groupings. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I think they all the stigma in those fields all comes from the same place. So in in medicine, um, we we can think of addiction as kind of a chronic disease. Um, and that that model may have some controversy around it, but there's definitely good evidence that we can treat treat addiction with medical interventions, with medicines, with therapy, uh, with different things that that the medical field has to offer. And so I think if people just realize that that addiction isn't something that is just like a mistake or or a character flaw or, or something wrong with a person, so to speak, it, it's like anything else. It could be like someone has high blood pressure. Um, and so you might not understand why their blood pressure is high or, or why they need to check in with their doctor every few months, get their medicines changed around. Um, uh, but, but addiction is very similar. 
um, it, it's just something that, that we need to work on. And, and there's a lot of options that we have medically to do that. Now, socially, we all know that how drug, how substances of various strengths and efficacy are discussed socially. When you think of someone who is an addict and socially, we can even split this upon race and gender or race. Yeah, pretty much race and gender, but we'll get to that. But socially, how do you think that the attitudes of, about addiction and someone being an addict have either changed for the better or continue to degenerate? So I think there definitely has been some change change for the better over the past years to, to decades maybe. Um, but I think kind of our, our social perception of addiction comes from kind of this, this societal construct that we've made and that is actually like a relatively new thing in terms of kind of the the history of, of civilization, um, whereas over the past 100, maybe 200 years or so, uh, substances have come to be kind of demonized and, and in a lot of cases literally demonized where they're associated with the devil. Um, but this kind of like war on drugs mentality that's particularly prevalent in the United States really, really didn't exist until kind of the late 1800s and 1900s um, and came around pretty much after uh, there was increases in kind of morphine addiction uh, because morphine used to be an over-the-counter medicine. Um, and then certainly there's plenty of other political, economic reasons that, that other drugs and substances were demonized. But um, more recently, I mean, I think pe- people recognize that given, especially with the opioid overdose crisis we've seen over the past five years or so, um, pretty much everyone probably at this point either knows someone firsthand or secondhand who has either been affected or has died um, or, or had some bad outcome because of this. And so I think more and more people are realizing that this isn't just something that kind of affects people in, in the way that maybe Hollywood or political ads had portrayed historically, where this was kind of people making bad decisions, people with uh, kind of bad, bad motivations, um, other, so to speak. Whereas this is, it really affects everyone and, and does affect everyone. Now, you had touched on the political reach and the political aspect of the stigma. Do you, I mean, we see it every day. We see it when we watch TV or when we see a politician. There is definitely a divide between thinking that addiction is a disease, which I feel that it is, and addiction is something that is, uh, how to put it, something that pretty much either self-cause or self, you know, something of the self-injurious nature. When you see, as a as a physician, when you see a non-doctor discuss addiction in such dismissive and disrespectful terms, what crosses your mind immediately? So I used used to get, very, very frustrated with this. Um, but I mean, as, as time's going on, I mean, I think unfortunately this is something that's common and e- even in medicine, even with other physicians and medical professionals, still kind of this, this bias exists. 
And I do think it kind of is is inherent in our society, the way we kind of, our, our cultural upbringing um, and kind of like the, the cultural norms that we have instilled into us. So I, I try not to hold it against people, um, but, it, but it is upsetting because there have been pretty major advances. I mean, in terms of opioid treatment especially, uh, we have very good medicines that can be used um, and, and people will still still kind of refrain from doing that. Um, and it's just, just another way that kind of the medical system is not fully engaging with patients. Um, which, which we've seen with other disease processes in history, but not not engaging with them on addiction because because we think it's a, a moral failing or, or a personal choice is, is something that we're going to have to continue to work on. Throughout the course of either what you've seen or from what you may have heard anecdotally, do you feel as though there is a race or and or gender discrepancy on how addicts are treated and thought of by not just just people in general. Yes. Oh, there definitely is. I mean, starting with kind of our, our legal system and the way we categorize, like, what are good drugs and bad drugs, legal versus illegal, a lot of this is definitely rooted in systemic racism um, and can very easily be traced back to kind of very racist things in in American history, uh, but even even to this day, there is definitely race, gender, socioeconomic. Um, I mean, even kind of urban versus rural disparities in terms of who has access to treatment, who has access to providers who will engage with them. Um, I mean, even for the same provider, that I'm sure that there are differences in this um, because this is just one of those unconscious biases that go, goes along with all those other other issues like, like race, gender, um, and the like. And e- even in my own personal experience, um, which, I mean, I ha- haven't been doing this forever, but uh, I, a couple of years ago, was trying to increase naloxone or Narcan um, and kind of get it out into the community because that's that's where you save people's lives. Narcan is wonderful. We don't really need it in the hospital because we have access to so many other things. But when you're outside of a hospital, there's really nothing else separating someone from with an opioid overdose from death besides Narcan. Um, and when we ended up analyzing the data at the end of the period, one thing that we hadn't even been, been intending to really look at or study um, that we found was that People who were um, white, people who were younger, and people who were female were more likely to receive Narcan than people who weren't. Now, with that, there is a... Now, you have said, I mean, throughout the course of your, throughout the course of your career, you said you have changed your, not so much your outlook, but you have, you know, seen things differently. When you first started practicing, and until this point now, how much of a vast difference have you seen with your own personal outlook as far as not so much being stunned, but the volume of addiction? So, I mean, I think just like right off the bat, I mean, the, the biggest thing to me is when I went through medical school and, and even training, I mean, most people were not 
not treating addiction, not not kind of recognizing this as as a medical condition. And since then, I mean, we've we've seen major growth in the field of addiction medicine. Um, and in the emergency department, I mean, now there's there's been a major push to kind of better recognize this, better treat it, rather than just sending someone back out on the street after an overdose, but but try to prevent them from having another overdose in the future. Um, and so, I mean, I think I I have also tried to change my outlook. I mean, I think it, it's very easy to get frustrated with people when it when it seems like they're not not doing the right thing, but just knowing that change is happening is one thing that has helped me. Um, and even though it's incremental, I mean, the the needle's moving here. Uh, this is going to change, and people will either end up end up on the right side or or they won't. One of the things that I think the stigma, just from a layman's term, is that most people will attest stigma because they don't really understand the basis, or not just the basis, but the foundation of addiction where there's a genetic and somewhat at times environmental uh, impact at play. Do you think that if the average person, un, you know, would understand that genetics and environment actually, you know, not go hand in hand, but kind of play a role in addiction, you think that would be a lot simpler for them to be able to mentally process? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I, I think that when people understand that it isn't just a choice and that there are kind of bigger things at play that are, are not easy for people to kind of like it isn't just as simple as picking something out at the grocery store, um, choosing whether whether someone u- is using drugs or not. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think in families where there's a strong strong genetic predisposition towards addiction, there can also be a lot of uh, kind of over overcorrection where where people get get more and more frustrated about that. But you do bring up a really good point. I mean, definitely. There, there's a genetic component. Um, there's socioeconomic components. I mean, people will turn to substances to process traumas um, and those kind of things. And so I think the, the biggest misconception is that most people tend to assume that when someone has addiction or when someone is using drugs, um, and when I say drugs, I mean illegal drugs, even though people use legal drugs all the time, but someone uses illegal drugs just to, quote, unquote, get high, uh, and most of the time, people are not using them to get high. Uh, there is a lot of self-medication. Um, there is the kind of escape from a, a bad reality. Um, it, and in the case of opioids, I mean, the majority of people actually use them to self-treat pain. Um, and then over the long term, there's a big proportion of people who continue using opioids to self-treat their own withdrawal symptoms. So I think that that's one thing that a lot of people don't don't really... No, um, I, I think they would definitely be able to understand that easily if it was more, more out there, kind of in the public sphere. But we are kind of colored by whatever's portrayed, um, TV, movies, and by our, our politicians and leaders, that kind of thing. I know just from my own personal story, just seeing people just throughout the course of my life, like in the black community, where there was always a mental health stigma where quote unquote we had the quote unquote 
crazy aunt, uncle, cousin who would kind of drift off to the side for family outing and family get-togethers where the want to seek help was mocked and diminished. So instead, this person either just disassociated, disassociated from the family or used drugs to, just like you said, dull the pain or to just escape their current mental reality. And it has taken years to try to chip away at that, even though they from the outside, inside, the, the community is not where it should be quite yet when it comes to treating mental illness. You see a lot of folks self-medicate because of just trying to either calm the voices or either just dull themselves so they don't have to deal with the pain and, you know, pain that's going on within. And it's one of those things that those conversations are finally starting to commence, but it's it's a long road. When we come back from break, I want to discuss how you advocate for op- op- opioid treatment and the obstacles you have faced. You are listening to the Black Tuesday podcast on the FPC Radio Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We are back with the Black Tuesday Podcast on PC Radio Network. Terrence Biggs, Dr. Ryan Marino. Dr. Marino, when opioid treatment has, over the last, I'd say... 10, uh, 10, 20 years has thankfully increased, and you see a lot of options out there, but there are still obstacles. In your mind, what has pushed you to becoming such a strong advocate for the treatment of opioid abuse? So there's a lot of reasons. Um, If I'm being fully honest here, I mean, I think the probably biggest motivator – looking back in retrospect has probably been kind of a a personal one. I mean, I have dealt with kind of these issues with family members and friends, um, but also, I mean, in in my own work with patients, I think these barriers make it, make it very difficult to do my job. And it, it is very rewarding and very satisfying to be able to actually help someone and treat them. Um, And I think while that is kind of a, a selfish motivator, myself I, I like to be able to do that at the end of the day it is what's best for people and it, it's based on I mean the, the best evidence um, and I mean if it makes 
me or another provider feel good to have helped someone and, and given them a chance at a successful recovery, then I think that's a, a worthwhile motivator as well. But so, I mean, my experiences in, in treating addiction, seeing someone who, for whatever reason, is kind of struggling with the, the depths of substance use and particularly um, to talk about opioids, I mean, there can be a lot of very, very terrible effects that people can have. I mean, this, this can become kind of all-consuming in their life. Um, and so being able to see the change that kind of medical treatment can make, it, it takes one thing off the table to be able to say to someone that you can stop using opioids today. You won't have to go through withdrawal. You won't have to contact a drug dealer. Um, you don't have to worry about your symptoms coming back. And they can kind of focus on the, the other issues other aspects of their life that they've been dealing with. Um, and so, I mean, that in itself is just kind of one of the ro most rewarding things that I can think of in a medical career. Um, and so trying to kind of remove the barriers that block people from having that success um, and from being that, that stable and able to kind of accomplish the things that, that they came to me wanting to accomplish um, is why I try to advocate for that. Now, one of the things that, one of the misconceptions that occurs with opioid addiction is that it is, how do I put this? Uh, it is a poor person's addiction where they think that because you might live in a rural or lower income environment that you are the only folks that will become addicts, and it is just not true. How do you combat that false preconceived notion? That's a good question. I don't necessarily know how I specifically do that, but, I mean, there it definitely can affect any anyone, any socioeconomic status, and any gender, any race. Um, and, I mean, we see people... Um, I guess one of the best examples I think that I tend to bring up a lot in kind of talks that I give is when we think of celebrities who either had an overdose or even died, um, they do not tend to receive the same kind of stigma that we would give even to maybe a patient that someone is treating themselves. Um, so, I mean, there's just in recent years, I mean, we've seen Prince, uh, Max Miller, Tom Petty, um, a lot of big names, um, and these people, it's kind of a, a sad thing. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy, but they don't get kind of treated the same way in, in public um, as we would to other people who are going through addiction or even a patient who presents after an overdose. Now, outside of the those aforementioned preconceived notions, there's also a... I'm sure there are obstacles that average person may not understand as far as, or may not grasp as far as advocating for treatment. What obstacles stand in the way of better, more widespread, more profound opioid treatment in America? There is a lot of obstacles. I think it can kind of be broken down into two main categories. The first category that I, I won't get too much into is the uh, like societal stigma. And I think the biggest issue there is like you said earlier, people hesitate to kind of 
treat these issues the same way as they would hesitate to treat mental health. It's perceived as a sign of weakness. Nobody wants to admit that they're struggling with addiction. And certainly, I mean, there's a lot of issues where if someone were to check into rehab or, or tell someone that they needed time off to deal with their substance use, I mean, you could risk losing your job. Um, there's a lot of other things, whereas if, if you were to check in for kind of cardiac rehab or say you, you had had a heart attack, rather than an overdose or you were trying to prevent yourself from having a heart attack, nobody would bat an eye um, and they would certainly make accommodations for you. But on the other side, there are a lot of, I guess what I would call administrative or bureaucratic obstacles that, that all come from the same area of stigma. But um, like there are not a lot of treatment facilities or providers available in the United States. There's definitely a deficit in rural areas. Um, methadone and buprenorphine are the, the two medicines that are best used to treat opioid addiction, um, and, and those are very unavailable. Methadone is one of the most restricted medicines in the United States. You can only receive it for addiction from a federal, uh, federally regulated treatment facility, um, and so people have to have transportation. They have to have time to go wait in line every morning to get their once-a-day dose um, and so obviously that can interfere with things like having a job um, and people who don't have access to transportation uh, or, or other things can, can be kind of left out. For buprenorphine, it's, it's a little easier, but it's still incredibly regulated. Um, and so, I mean, prescribers need to have a special waiver where they have to pay um, and take a special course to be able to prescribe it, even though this is an incredibly safe medicine. Um, and there's no, nothing similar for prescribing opioids like uh, Oxycontin, uh, Percocet, all, all of those things. And so that, that has limited it, whereas last year, um, I think it was about 5% of eligible prescribers were actually even able, able to prescribe that. Um, and then, I mean, there's issues with insurances, uh, with, with hospitals and healthcare systems who, who quote-unquote, don't believe in these things um, or, or pharmacies that don't want to dispense them. Um, it, but it, it really is all, there's no good reason. It's all just a, a lot of little reasons that kind of come from the same place. And it's because someone at some point decided that this was a, a bad drug and a, a bad problem to have um, and that these people were less deserving than, than other things. Now, when we come back from break, I want to discuss the odd bond between or pretty much the odd bond slash lie between police and aerosolized fentanyl. You are listening to the Black Tuesday podcast on the FPC radio network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are back with the Black Today Podcast on PC Real Network. Terrence Biggs, Dr. Ryan Marino. Dr. Marino, there is a lie afoot about police and aerosolized fentanyl. Can you break this down and kind of explain, and I'll ask questions along the way? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought this up, and I'm glad you called it a lie because that is exactly what it is. But so for whatever reason, at some point within the past several years, probably in about uh, 2016 or 17, this phenomenon started occurring where law enforcement would show up to an overdose scene and the responders, the police officers usually, would report symptoms um, and this would make it into the news as they were exposed to fentanyl and got toxic, got sick, or overdosed from it. The problem is that none of the symptoms were consistent with fentanyl, fentanyl toxicity or fentanyl overdose, not consistent with opioids in any way. Um, and the much bigger problem is that you can't overdose on fentanyl this way. Um, I mean, I think if you think about drug use in general, obviously people aren't just standing near their drugs they don't just touch touch them, um, and for the most part, they're not just kind of breathing the air where, where the drugs are. So that that's kind of the the gist of it. But for whatever reason, this keeps happening. It keeps getting perpetuated, um, and there have now been, I mean, countless reports of this, countless stories. And as recently as today, I heard there was an incident uh, outside of San Francisco, I think, where. Law enforcement got sick um, from someone responding to a, a drug overdose. Now, you would think that police, and I have looked online, and there are police unions that are warning against aerosol fentanyl. Like they are issuing statements to their constituents, fellow police officers, about aeros- aerosolized fentanyl. And you would think that's something that is. Easily, easily proven false would just halt this. What do you think the motivation is beside the for the reason of keep perpetuating this lie, basically? So yeah, um, that's, I don't have necessarily a good answer. I mean, I think there's probably more than one thing at play here. I feel like for the most part, the reason that kind of the at least. The, the public and kind of the, the news media who believe these stories or are putting these stories forward, it probably has something to do with kind of hearing that fentanyl is a hundred times more potent than morphine, 
Um, we're hearing that, I mean, 50,000 Americans died from a fentanyl overdose last year. Uh, and kind of all of these these scary-sounding statistics, scary-sounding numbers in relation to fentanyl, uh, it, it kind of has come across as like a new boogeyman uh, where why is this drug killing killing so many more people than something like heroin? Um, and there was also this report from Russia back in the early 2000s where the, there was a, a hostage crisis in a movie theater and the, the Russian armed forces were eventually able to subdue the uh, hostage takers by pumping something through the ventilator system of this theater. And some of the survivors of this incident were later had their clothing tested in the UK and the testing did show that there was some fentanyl analogs present, uh, suggesting that fentanyl had been pumped into the theater. What, what we do know is that fentanyl itself does not readily aerosolize. Um, and so even if fentanyl was the, a fentanyl analog was the sole agent used in this theater, which it probably wasn't, it was probably mixed with something else, um, then, I mean, this would require kind of strategic planning of like a, a very well-equipped armed forces with kind of unlimited resources, the ability to get kilos and kilos of fentanyl powder and blow it through a closed system. It's not, not something that could ever happen kind of from like a, a stamp bag of fentanyl sitting in a, in a, even a closed room. Um, but for whatever reason, this has caught on. Um, and it, it also seems like some of these stories do also involve kind of a, an aspect of wanting to enhance or augment the criminal charges against the people who are using drugs. Um, and certainly if you cause harm to an officer, that, that is a, a separate charge. And so we've seen kind of weaponization of fentanyl uh, drug charges as well, um, which is kind of ironic thinking that fentanyl is being weaponized when it, it seems like actually the criminal justice system is what's being weaponized against people who use drugs. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, because of the prevalence of this myth and the fact that so many people now are under the assumption that you could have an overdose just by being near someone who used drugs, just by being in the same room or just by touching someone who is having an overdose, uh, I personally, and I know this is not, not unique to my cases, but I've seen people who have not been resuscitated when they're having an overdose just because people are so scared. Um, and I, I mean, I've seen a lot of companies trying to profit off of selling fentanyl proof gloves and other things that are, are totally bogus. There's, there's no actual science behind this and no need for those things. I mean, your skin is a fentanyl proof glove essentially. Um, and in, in pre COVID times, I used to kind of laugh at that, but, uh, when, once COVID hit, I was a little upset to think about all the wasted uh, N95s and other PPE that went into kind of responding to drug overdose scenes because of this this ridiculous myth, this lie that, that keeps getting told. Now, it's funny because in prep for the show and I was thinking about the, the fifth fentanyl myth, there was a, as you probably know, there's a paper written by the American College of Medical toxicology and American Academy of Clinical Toxicology and it says pretty much like it's a scientific impossibility like it's right there but yet you see police and you see people just 
hanging on to a lie when it's science is saying, hey, this is not what it is. It's right here. Here's all the stuff. Here's what you need to know. Nope, let's just ignore science and kind of look over here and grasp the dramatic or the overly dramatic part of it. Now, you mentioned the punishment for addicts. Do you believe – actually, let me just rephrase that. If you yourself were in charge of being able to meet out punishment, do you think that someone who is an addict and, you know, gets arrested with what they might deem as illegal drugs, do you think that it should be immediate uh, rehabilitation, or do you think that there should be a sentence attached to it, or do, or do you think it should be strict rehabilitation and trying to help them cure them of this disease, or not cure them of disease, but help them fight this disease? So this is tough. Um, I mean, I think that the current current laws we have are are no good in in this regard in terms of drugs and overdoses and if if i were to personally have my way i would actually not only decriminalize all drugs but i would i would legalize all of them because i think if if someone really wants drugs they're going to find a way to get to them um and to have to have criminal consequences attached to that doesn't really benefit the person doesn't benefit society doesn't benefit anyone um, and we've actually just created a very unsafe drug supply because, I mean, if you think the drugs you buy from the pharmacy, you know that those are regulated, they're inspected, they don't have any contaminants. They I- ideally shouldn't shouldn't hurt you if you take them as directed. Um, but the drugs you buy on the street, I mean, come from who knows where, who knows who made them, who knows what else they added in. Um, in the past, we've seen things like strychnine be used as a cutting agent for heroin just because it looked and tasted very similar. And obviously, you don't you don't want to be using strychnine when you think you're using heroin. So that's, that's where I would come from with that regard. But I think in terms of kind of how to respond to overdoses, how to respond to people who use drugs, it is kind of a delicate balance where you want to offer them kind of the resources to get into treatment or recovery but not, not kind of mandate it um, because even in kind of what would seem like the best designed systems where people like automatically go to a medical rehabilitation facility straight from their overdose or, or after being picked up on the streets somewhere um, at, a, at a drug deal or something, um, those people don't necessarily do as well uh, if, if they're not ready to kind of get into recovery um, or if they, they can't do it the way that is best for them. So I do kind of like a, a hybrid approach where, I mean, I think we should train more people. I don't, I don't know if police are necessarily the ones who need to be responding to overdoses, but training people to be able to respond to an overdose is pretty easy to do. Um, and honestly, if we had, like, supervised, supervised youth centers, um, then we could just have medical staff respond to those overdoses and then kind of eliminate the whole question of this happening in public of who needed to respond in the first place. Um, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those things when you look at it, it's, it would make sense, the decriminalization, but what would certain politicians have to run against? If they're not tough on something, then, I mean, it pretty much undercuts a lot of the false narrative bravado that they try to instill into their potential voters into their potential voters. So it's 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 almost a need 
like to need to have a, a a boogeyman, a straw man at times, to fight against to kind of puff oneself up to look tough. Yeah, and I think there's definitely um, the aspect where people are creating politicians, particularly, are creating kind of this idea that there is some some danger out there. Um, you need someone who's going to be like tough on crime, tough on drugs, whatever, whatever they're saying. But also, people for the most part, in my experience, worry that that if drugs became decriminalized, if drugs were legalized, that people would be kind of doing them everywhere, that their kids would start doing them, which which isn't the case. Um, and I mean, even with we've seen kind of supervised consumption sites open in Canada in recent years, and there is actually one in the United States. Um, but but people worry significantly that if there's this place where people are able to inject heroin, um, like near their house, that it'll increase crime, it'll cause needles all over the street. Um, and those are just things that don't actually happen. Uh, and when people tell me that, they usually don't want to hear that this isn't what happened because they've already made up their mind that it will. But what I tell them instead is that if you don't believe in kind of safe drug consumption sites, then you're advocating for unsafe drug consumption sites because I guarantee people in your neighborhood are still using drugs in their basement, in their backyard, in, in the alley, wh- wherever. Um, this happens in rich neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, rural neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods, you name it. Um, I mean, the real reason to advocate for the safe sites is because we have unsafe sites everywhere and nobody, nobody should want people to be unsafe. Now, Dr. Maria, before we get out, of it, can you let people know where they can interact with you on Twitter or social media in general? Because you, you, you provide a font of information and insight for people who want to learn more and to kind of do their own research. Yeah, so it's probably easiest. I am mostly on Twitter, um, just at Ryan Marino, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. Um, and that's probably the best place to find me. You can find me at T Biggs as capital T, capital B, lowercase, everything else. You can find our official site is at Tuesday Fight, capital T, capital F, lowercase, everything else. Doc, I want to thank you so much for joining. This has been a very insightful, intriguing, and a knowledgeable conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. One last thing, if I have a quick second before I go. Of course. I, I do want to mention, since I said your your hands are essentially fentanyl-proof gloves or your skin is, there is a fentanyl patch that is meant to be delivered through the skin. So I just want to make sure people are clear. This patch takes, I mean, like 17 hours to reach a very low concentration in your blood. The skin is still a very good barrier for fentanyl for any opioid, even though this is a thing. Um, it, it kind of gets conflated sometimes, but the fentanyl patch is not, not a risk for overdose from touching um, and does not kind of negate the argument that fentanyl can or cannot be absorbed through skin. Thank you so much, Doc. This has been an episode of the Black Tuesday Podcast. Please be good to yourselves and be good to each other.